Thanks, Patrick. If you just want to put the extras back there in the back row, people can grab them. All right, let's get started this morning by uh, praying together. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're grateful for um, the Lord's Day. We're thankful for this day set apart for rest and for worship, uh, for communion with you and with one another. Um, What a gift it is. Uh, Father, as we prepare even for our worship this morning um, together in Sunday School Now, I pray that your spirit would bless us as we continue to meditate upon um, the things that you call us to be as a church and the ways that we seek to express that in our life together. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So for these um, six weeks, we began last week, we'll continue until the second Sunday of November. Um, I'm just seeking to kind of articulate a little bit um, some of the core values, some of the um, uh, highest priorities for us here at Colleyville Presbyterian Church. Um, and uh, just trying to summarize what makes us distinctive in some ways as a church, um, um, as a Reformed Presbyterian church, but in some ways even within the context of Reformed Presbyterian churches, what are the things about our church in particular um, that make us a little bit different and, and the, the places where we put especially strong emphases. So last week we began this series um, by talking about what for me is the heart of what I want our church to be about which is uh, union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism you see there um, in your handout, the first question is that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And actually, there are times when you may have heard me be a little bit um, critical of John Piper. John Piper and I have some disagreements along the way. Um, But I do think that Piper has a helpful um, sort of gloss of this Shorter Catechism question, which is that he says... The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Have you all heard that? Uh, Changing that and to a by. And I I think that is um, a helpful sort of gloss of the catechism because it connects those two things. It's not a separate thing on the one hand. We don't glorify God in some um, separate way that is apart from enjoying him. Um, And so I think Piper is right, and we should bring those two chief ends into one chief end. It is expressed, of course, as a chief end, singular, Um, in our catechism answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God. How do we glorify God? We glorify him by enjoying him forever. And so that means that the the end of the Christian life is, um, and thus the purpose of the church, is communion with the triune God, enjoyment of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If that is the chief end of the, the reason for which man was made, then that must also be the chief end for which the church was made and to be a place where that communion, that fellowship, that enjoyment with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is facilitated and is um, um, encouraged as a place for that to take place. Um, Thus, I said last week, our church exists most fundamentally to be a place where men, women, and children are drawn into communion with God, drawn into communion with God, which is a way of saying drawn into enjoyment of God in this life and in the life to come. So we're we're concerned not only about what we do here, but the ways in which what we do here presently in this life um, ramp up to eternity, because we think that is uh, the eternal destiny um, of those who are called in Jesus Christ, is to enjoy God forever. Um, So last week we talked about how one of the ways that this works itself out in the life of our church is that the two most common uh, phrases that you are likely to hear in our church are, um, you are the beloved, on the one hand, um, from Matthew three seventeen, the story of Jesus's baptism and the voice of the Father speaking to the Son, and the word Christ and the phrase "Christ is your life." Um, Christ is your life, of course, comes from 
um, that really important um, verse at the beginning of Colossians 3, where Paul says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ um, in God. And when the Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Um, so you are the beloved, Christ is your life. And in fact, we would, I would say, um, uh, you are the beloved, and the way that you experience your belovedness is by experiencing your life in Christ. That union with Christ is the way in which we learn what it means to be the beloved of God. And so there are you know, many ways in which we try to reinforce those concepts, those phrases in the life of our church. I'm preaching an annual sermon um, on that text from Matthew 3 entitled, You Are the Beloved. Uh, many times throughout the worship service, I will address the congregation or Patrick will address the congregation as beloved. Um, we have that Christ is your life verse, of course, every week in our, um, in our uh, liturgy in the very beginning. And then it, it's something that really we try to carry all the way through in our worship so that those concepts, those phrases, those scriptural truths are being impressed deeply into us. Uh, because the beginning and end of what we want our church to be is those who are being formed in union with Jesus Christ. Um, to abide with Christ, I have here. Uh, to be hidden with God in Christ. To be made Christ. That is the goal and the purpose of our church's life. And to be a place where men and women and children are experiencing that reality. Uh, we talked last week also, though, that this union with Christ that we want to see people embody and enjoy is not just a static uh, binary category. Um, it is, in a sense, something that is objective and achieved by the work of the Spirit through faith um, when you are regenerated and brought into union with Jesus, but it's also something that you can, that you not only can, but you, you do, you grow into, you mature into your union with Christ. Um, John Calvin puts it this way, he says, not only does he, that is Christ, dwell with us by an invisible bond of fellowship, but with a wonderful communion Day by day, he grows more and more into one body with us until he becomes completely one with us. Day by day, he grows more and more into one body with us until he becomes completely one with us. I love the way that Calvin puts that because it, it gives a kind of trajectory for the Christian life, which is most properly understood, I would argue, not by accumulation of knowledge or even um, some sort of kind of growth in morality. Those, those things are certainly important, but most primarily the trajectory of the Christian life is where one becomes more and more united to the Lord Jesus Christ, more and more conformed to his image, um, because in him are hidden all the treasures of God, as Paul tells us in Colossians. And so as we grow in union with Christ, we receive everything else thrown in. Um, but we want to get the order straight. We want to we see that personal uh, union with Jesus as being the central thing about who we are as a church. And then we get everything else uh, brought into us brought into our, our spiritual lives. So let me stop there before I move into the means of grace stuff we're going to talk about today. Any questions or comments from that sort of just brief overview we discussed last week? Very good. Okay. But how do we abide in Christ? How do we grow in our union with him? This is a fundamentally important question, I think. And how we answer it will play an enormous role in our spiritual lives. Um, I, th I think this really is a, 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 a question on which sort of the distinctive emphases of our church really begin um, to turn and to set ourselves in some ways apart from other traditions of the Christian church. I think many um, uh, aspects or parts of Christendom would agree that communion with God would be a fundamental purpose for why the church exists. But how? How do we commune with God? How do we grow in this union 
with the Lord Jesus Christ? I think there, there are ways to answer this that is kind of intellectual, right? That, that the way that we grow in our union with Christ is, is by knowledge, primarily, accumulating knowledge, maybe doctrinal knowledge, uh, maybe um, we, we, we become better theologians, that kind of thing. There's also a kind of emotional answer to this question, that perhaps we grow in our union with Christ primarily through sort of emotional experiences um, that, that sort of um, become the places where God becomes real to us, and that can happen in any place and in any way. Um, I'm going to quote here from Frederick Buechner, and I'll preface this by saying I love Frederick Buechner. Um, he's a wonderful Christian pastor and writer, um, but I, 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 I'm not sure this is a great summary of Christian spirituality that he gives here. He says, whenever you find tears in your eyes, especially unexpected tears, it is well to play the closest attention. They're not only telling you something about the secret of who you are, but more often than not, God is speaking to you through them of the mystery of where you have come from and is summoning you to where, if your soul is to be saved, you should go next. Now, I certainly think that, that crying, tears, weeping, is a good thing. Um, I cry like twice a week. Um, that's just how the Lord has wired me. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just part of my deal. Um, and, and some of you are probably like that. Um, maybe some of you are not, and that's, that's okay. Um, but it is something to think about. I think that tears are given to us um, um, as a way to be human before God. And we know the Lord Jesus wept at the death of his friend. Um, it is something that um, is, is, you know, a part of being emotional and fully alive before God. Certainly, tears should not be absent from our spiritual experience. But it seems to me that, that Beaconer is setting up um, tears, by which I mean him to take a kind of deep emotional, um, personally emotional experience to be a kind of guidestone toward where God is leading you. What is God trying to speak to you and say to you? And, and I think if you're not careful, unless a quote like this is, is really well um, explained and has a lot of proper disclaimers, this can lead you in some unhelpful ways because it is locating your spiritual life in some kind of subjective experience um, that can take you from place to place to place. And what I want to argue is that God has actually given us objective places to look for Christ, to find Christ. Um, yes, it may overlap with, hopefully it does overlap with places in which we have deep emotional experiences in our lives. Um, that's absolutely the case. But again, I think the order is important. It's not the emotional experiences that lead us to Christ. It's the places where Christ has promised to disclose himself to us that we are meant to find those deep emotional experiences and even tears in our eyes, as Beekner puts it. And I do think this is a way, as you survey sort of the modern evangelical um, you know, American church, um, I think this is a place where our church is a bit distinctive and different than other churches in the terms of how we describe the spiritual life and what is valuable for it. In our church, we believe the primary way to grow in our union with Christ is through what we call the means of grace. The means of grace. A means of grace that's not a necessarily a explicitly um, scriptural term. It's a theological term that's been derived from scripture, um, but it's one that's very important in our um, understanding of what it means to be spiritual, what it means to be mature in Christ. Let me just show you a couple places in our uh, catechism and, and confessions where you see that. In Westminster Shorter Catechism 85, 
What does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? What do we do because of our sin and the wrath of God that is uh, justly ours because of it? Our catechism answers to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin. God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his redemption. I think that's a really interesting answer. Um, sometimes, you know, as, as Christians, we can just emphasize, well, what do we have to do to, to be delivered from our sin? Well, faith. Yes, faith, but, but faith and repentance, according to our catechism here, and a diligent use of the means of grace that the Lord has given us. These is all, they're all part of the same whole. We can't separate faith and make it just a sort of like intellectual assent to certain propositions about God that don't express themselves in our lives in repentance, right? And, and, and hating our sin and, and turning from it, grieving it, really knowing what it is. That's what repentance is. And um, in availing ourselves of the means of grace, the the means by which, outward means, whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. So what are those outward and ordinary means? Westminster Shorter Catechism 88 answers this question. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. If anyone needs a handout, they're back in the back, I think. Is that right, Patrick? Right on, right on the, uh, the, the soundboard there. Um, if you want to hand up, raise your hand and, and maybe somebody can grab one for you. That'd be great. Um, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So here you see in our, in our tradition, our Reformed Presbyterian tradition, um, word, sacrament, and prayer are set apart and are said, um, the Lord, you know, of course, can work in any way um, as he sees fit in the life of a Christian. Um, but there are outward and ordinary means by which the Lord has promised to do this by his spirit. And those are word, sacrament, and prayer. Now, one of the primary, I mean, you see, I think, an argument for, I mean, I think one question is why these three and not other things, right? Why word, sacrament, and prayer? Um, I think that there's a whole biblical theological argument to be made for that, but one of the places you see this uh, most primarily is in Matthew 28 and then in Acts 2. Let me just show you those places real quickly. So Matthew 28, of course, Jesus is giving his great commission um, to his disciples and sending them out. And he says in verse 18, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I don't think Jesus is there giving a comprehensive picture of what the church must do in his name, um, but he's giving essential things, right? What is Jesus emphasizing there? What are the two means of grace especially that are emphasized in that great commission? How do, how's, what's the first way that the disciples are to make, apostles are to make disciples of the nations? Baptism, right? The sacrament. Um, this institution appointed by Christ um, to be a sign and seal of um, those who receive it. They're engrafting into Christ the remission of their sins, their regeneration, 
their engagement to be the Lord's. And then, um, what's the second thing that he emphasizes? Teaching, right? Teaching them all that I have commanded you, which we see there, that's the word aspect, right? Um, he's saying you need to bring the scriptures to bear um, in your discipleship. Um, sacraments and the word are primary and central in terms of what it means for you to make disciples of the nations. This is, gonna, this is what you do. This is what your commission is, is to bring word and sacrament to bear on the life of the nations. And then you see in Acts 2, of course, after the day of Pentecost, the church is established by the Spirit um, through the will of Christ. Um, in the preaching of Peter and the other apostles, there are 3,000 that are baptized that day. And then we read in verse 42, this is what they did after um, their baptisms. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That is about as good, I think, a summary of the Christian life as exists in the New Testament in terms of what characterizes the Christian life. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. What do we see there in terms of means of grace, right? We see the apostles' teaching. What means of grace is that? It's the word, right? The apostles are summarizing the life of Jesus and the writing of the Gospels, reflecting upon the Old Testament scriptures and interpreting them through the lens of Jesus' death and resurrection as the word. Um, and to the breaking of bread, what's that? It's the sacrament, right? That's the Eucharist. I think we can be safe to say that that's not, it probably includes um, commonly eating meals together, um, but certainly I think there's an Eucharistic element to that, that the breaking of bread there um, has a particular meaning. Remember that Jesus, um, um, on the, the road to Emmaus, when he sat with the disciples, um, the two disciples, when he got to their house, he broke bread, right? And that was obviously a Eucharistic thing. That phrase, the breaking of bread, is not simply the consumption of, of, of bread in a, in a common way, but also includes a Eucharistic element and to the prayers, right? So word, sacrament, and prayer. And all of this happens in the context of the fellowship, which the fellowship there is certainly Christians getting together during the week and um, you know, enjoying time with one another, but it primarily, I think, refers to the fellowship that they share on the Lord's Day, um, the Lord's Day being the corporate expression of the church in its fullest sense, where word, sacrament, and prayer are most essential and central to the life of the church. Um, we see those things. That these, are, these are ways in which, these are things that we see, I think, in the writing of the scriptures that are central to the life of the church um, by the institution of Jesus um, and his great commission and also in the practice of the um, first Christians um, through the teaching of the apostles in Jesus' name. Word, sacrament, and prayer are central to who they are. Did you have a question, Kim? Yeah. That's correct. Yeah, so Kim was asking. So what I'm saying is that fellowship is the context in which the other three take place, and that's exactly right. Um, that, that none of these means are means by which we experience Christ in isolation from one another, but we do so as a body, as a fellowship, in fellowship with one another, in koinonia. So yeah, I would, I would not describe fellowship as a sort of fourth means of grace, but rather the context in which we receive word, sacrament, and prayer. And that being especially uh, true um, on the Lord's Day, that, that fellowship, the fellowship of the saints that we share together um, when we gather in worship um, on the Lord's Day is when we truly and, and most fully receive word, sacrament, and prayer um, given to us. <clears throat> 
Um, we see this also in Westminster Confession of Faith 14. Uh, the grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word. Right? The Spirit of Christ is not just work in our hearts typically in some immediate, that is without means, way. It works through, ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, here is referring to saving faith in particular, and by which also in the administration of the sacraments and prayer is increased and strengthened. That these become means by which we receive um, the Lord himself. Um, Louis Burkhoff, who is a, 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 a Dutch Reformed theologian, um, he writes, Fallen man receives all the blessings of salvation out of the eternal fountain of the grace of God in virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ and through the operation of the Holy Spirit. Right, we it's a Trinitarian thing. Right? It's the grace of God, the merits of Christ, Christ himself through the operation of the Spirit. Then he says, while the Spirit can and does in some respect operate immediately on the soul of sinners, he has seen fit to bind himself largely to the use of certain means in the communication of that grace. This is a really central point, and I think a point by which um, the way in which our church lives out these things is different from other churches in the evangelical landscape today. That is that we don't think that the Spirit typically works immediately on a person's soul or heart or person. That is without means. Does that make sense? We think actually the Spirit is always at work. We are Holy Spirit Christians here, um, you know, Pentecostal Christians here um, at Caliphate Presbyterian Church, but we believe that the Spirit most often works through outward and ordinary means to work in the hearts of those who belong to Christ. Does that make sense? And those outward and ordinary means are the scriptures, the sacraments, and prayer. Right? That these are outward and ordinary means by which the Spirit has promised to work toward those whom are loved by God. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yeah, certainly would distinguish that from like um, other traditions that would emphasize like dreams and visions um, or even other, other or, or the sort of giving of prophetic words would be an example. I know in my own experience, you know, I have a, a Pentecostal background um, and th that was one of the major emphases of, of that tradition was um, you know, receiving a word from the Lord for someone else and sharing it with that person, and they would then, you know, want to um, align their lives in particular ways based upon that. Um, yeah, certainly the, the immediate sort of uh, working of the Spirit, um, aside from the study of God's Word, the preaching of God's Word, the reception of the sacraments, or prayer, um, I think. And of course, that prayer category is an important one, um, but it's interesting that Reformed tradition has never held the prayer category to be a sort of primarily a revelatory category, right? That we don't receive revelation from God through prayer. Prayer is actually the place where we dialogue with God and interact with Him and speak with Him. And that is the way in which largely, and that's, that is an interesting distinction, I think, in terms of prayer as we think of the means of grace, um, that the word and sacrament are primary 
primarily passive, you know, we're, we're receiving the word, we're receiving preaching, we're receiving the Eucharist, and prayer adds a kind of dynamic of us um, taking initiative and going to God, um, rather than that being the place where God primarily speaks to us. Um, and I think that's pretty different than other evangelical traditions, where prayer especially becomes a place where God's revelation is found, um, that, it, that it operates outside of sometimes the channels that are given, especially in the scriptures. Um, so that, that's definitely one of the distinctions that I would make. Another distinction I would make is just sort of, I think often within evangelical the world today, there's this emphasis on spiritual experiences um, that are in nature, that are in the context of other practices. Um, uh, you know, this sort of, you know, you're always sort of looking for the next spiritual thing that's gonna lead you down the path um, to uh, maturity. And what we, what we wanna say is we don't actually need to do that because there are paths, there are channels that are given to us in the scriptures, in the sacraments, in prayer um, that are available to us that we know this is how God has actually promised to work. These are reliable ways, trustworthy ways, um, where God has promised um, as we avail ourselves of them to work maturity in us, to give us actually the person of Jesus Christ. Any further questions or thoughts about that before we move on to kind of work this stuff out in a little some practical ways. Yes, sir. Yeah, and that's and that's right. Sure, and I get that. And usually, it's not necessarily stated that boldly that you know current revelation is as valid as scripture. But certainly, in my experience, that was often the way it worked out. It was kind of the de facto. Um, way in which, which, yeah, which I experienced the spiritual life. I think that's fair. Well, let me continue to make progress here so we can work through um, this. What, what does it mean that the means of grace is on the back of the, the page are outward and ordinary? Outward and ordinary. Burkhoff explains, he says, this means that they are objective channels in which Christ is instituted in the church and to which he ordinarily binds himself in the communication of his grace, right? So they're outward and that they're objective. We can, we can name them. We, can, we know what they are. We know what, it's hard sometimes to describe what is a vision? What is a, you know, a, a revelatory word that's given to us? That's hard, but we know what the scriptures are, right? We, they're, um, they're put together for us and, and translated for us. We know what the sacrament is. It's bread and wine and water. Um, we know what prayer is. Prayer is a little bit more mysterious, but still, it, I think it has some good definition, especially when we understand it scripturally and we pray according to the way that the scriptures instruct us, right? The teaching of Jesus and the Psalms that are given to us. Um, there's their objective channels and they're ordinary in that they're plain. They're not, um, you know, they don't have to be adorned by anything else, but they're also ordinary in the sense that this is the regular way that the Spirit works, right? This is the normal way. It would be extraordinary for the Spirit to work outside of his means of grace, outside of word, sacrament, and prayer to bring you into a deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ. It would be abnormal, we might say, right, for him to do that. We're not, and we're not here trying to bind the work of the Spirit. Certainly the Spirit is at liberty to work where and how he pleases to bring us into knowledge of Jesus Christ but we definitely want to say the outward and ordinary, the normal, the regular, the objective ways that we should look 
for our growth in Christ is through word, sacrament, prayer. And what do we mean by grace? I think this is a really important question. We say means of grace. Owen says this, John Owen, the Puritan theologian, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, quoting from Paul. Yes, Paul makes these two, grace be with you and the Lord Jesus be with you, to be equivalent expressions. And Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson, a modern Reformed theologian, reflects on this insight and says, grace is therefore ultimately personal. Grace is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's grace. For grace is not substantial in the sense of being a quality or an entity that can be abstracted from the person of the Savior. So we want to be very careful when we use this theological phrase, means of grace. We don't mean that God has some bank account of grace that he then gives us somehow um, through our reception of the word, mean, word sacrament or prayer. What we mean is that God's grace is the person of Jesus Christ. And so actually what we are receiving in word, sacrament, and prayer is Jesus. That's what we're getting, right? We're not getting some thing that can be abstracted away from his person. We're actually getting him. We're doing what Calvin described when he says, day by day, we grow more and more one with him until we are completely united, right? We're growing in communion with Christ himself, that Christ is actually objectively offered through word, sacrament, and prayer, especially on the Lord's Day in the worship of God's people. Um, so since my call, I say, as your pastor, or Patrick's call as your pastor, is to serve you in your growth and your union with Christ, the only way for us to do that with confidence, therefore, is to encourage your weekly and even daily reception of word, sacrament, prayer. We want these to be the, the three well-trod paths by which our church's ministry is experienced by you. Um, really, we want pretty much everything we do to fall into at least one of these three categories in terms of what you experience um, in our church, because that is where Christ offers himself to be. Um, practically speaking, this means that I want our church's practices to always be shaped by the communication and reception of the means of grace, of word, sacrament, and prayer. So let's just think about this for a moment. We can talk about it some. How does this work out in terms of sacraments? Well, we in our church have a confessional view of sacrament, the sacraments. Um, you might say we have a high view of the sacraments, but I would just say we have a reformed view of the sacraments. And we believe that what our confession teaches about the sacraments are true, that baptism is a sign and a seal of our engrafting into Christ, the remission of our sins, the regeneration by the Spirit, our engagement to be the Lord's, that we believe that the Lord's Supper is a sign and a seal of our union with Christ, that we are actually feeding upon him in a spiritual, not carnal, but a spiritual manner, really and truly, um, that there is a, a true presence of Christ um, that we experience in the Lord's Supper. Um, you know, and, and, and I, I want to be very clear about that. That's one of the distinctives of our church, that we have what some would call a high view of the sacraments, what I would call simply a, a traditional Reformed Protestant Presbyterian understanding of the sacraments, which in various times I think has been lost, unfortunately, um, in, even in Presbyterian and Reformed circles. But we want to, that's something that, that is definitely a distinctive about our church and a value for our church, that we believe that the sacraments are not merely memorials, they don't merely point uh, and help us intellectually, but they are actually true means of communion with Christ that have been given to us where the Spirit works and calls us deeper and deeper into union with Jesus. And of course, this is one of the primary reasons why we have the Lord's Supper every week, um, because we believe that it is a primary means of grace, um, and it is important for us to do that, even essential in some ways. Uh, this is why we make a big deal out of baptisms when we do them, that they're 
not only baptizing this child um, into the church, but into Christ, but also um, that it's an opportunity for all of us to reflect on our own baptisms, to remember the covenant that God has made with each of us um, when we were baptized. Uh, word. So this works itself out, especially in our Lord's Day worship. We'll talk next time. I'm going to talk more explicitly, walk us through the liturgy and why we worship the way we do. But just if you just think about it for a moment, how much the scriptures are a part of our liturgy, I would encourage you just sometime just to take some time um, and just really look through it, take one home. Um, basically, every phrase in our order of worship is scripture, like pretty much all of it. Um, our, our prayers that we pray are, are drenched in scripture. Um, we often use psalms themselves um, for our confession. Um, you know, in our salutation and opening part of the service, we're saying scriptural phrases, taste and see that the Lord is good, blessed is man who takes refuge in him, right? Psalm 34, um, Colossians 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God, etc., etc. We use scripture when we declare the forgiveness of sins to you um, from the pulpit. Um, we have three long readings, um, uh, reasonably long readings at least, of Scripture in terms of um, uh, Old Testament, Epistle, and Gospel. Um, we preach, of course, um, through uh, sections of the Scriptures, um, sometimes for years um, we take to do that. Um, uh, we go through um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the things that we say at the... Um, Communion, Alleluia, Christ our Passover and sacrifice for us, therefore let us keep the feast. That's from 1 Corinthians 6. Um, you know, just all over the place, even the prayer that we pray at the end of our service, the prayer of dedication, when we say, All gracious God, who of your infinite love, give your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins and rise again for our justification. That's Romans 4. And have made us partakers of your divine nature through the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Peter 1. Accept the fruit. Like, and then we pray the Lord's Prayer, which of course is in Matthew and Luke. Um, like our whole service, and then we close by blessing you with words of number six. Like the whole thing is basically, you know, the scripture. That, that's, and, that, and part of the reason we do that is because we believe the word is a means of grace, that it is. And as it's put upon you, as you hear it, as you say it, as you learn to take it on your lips, as you study it, that it actually is a channel, an outward and ordinary channel by which Christ has promised to communicate himself to you, to give himself to you would be a better way of putting it, that actually this is a trustworthy place where we can trust that God is going to work. We don't have to guess. We can be confident that this actually is a place where God works. Um, and then this works itself out in the week through our daily scripture readings that the church publishes each month. Um, that's something that I take very seriously and work on each month um, and have developed over the years. I've been your pastor. Um, you know, it's it's I don't just take them on our website somewhere. Like those are things that I put together myself um, for us as a church. And I hope that they're something that you see as a good resource for your daily scripture reading because we don't only want your, your communion with Christ and the word to be only here on, Lord's, on the Lord's Day, but also during the week. This is why Patrick and I both invest time in teaching weekly Bible studies, right? Um, I've taught um, men's and women's Bible studies here for five years now and never have I done... I'm not saying we couldn't do this, like we could do a study on justification or something or creation or whatever, some theological topic. But all I've done for the last five years is teach different parts of the Bible, you know, Philippians, Ruth, Mark, Romans, 1st and 2nd Samuel, Genesis. I mean, we're just doing the Bible again and again. And we do that because it fits with our distinctive, with our core values, because we believe that the scriptures are a true means of grace. And as we study them together, 
we actually grow in Christ because that's how he's promised primarily to give himself to us. And then finally, prayer, right? Lord's Day worship is training camp in some ways. It is a place where you train. It's a, it's a, little, it's a schoolhouse in some ways. You learn to pray. You learn to pray to God by coming to worship. And that's why so much of our service is printed out and written and repetitive because we're actually seeking to teach you how to pray and learning together how to pray. That's what we're wanting to do with one another is to learn what it means to pray. We don't think prayer is just something that you just sort of open your mouth and it just, you know, whatever comes out, that that is, uh, I mean, that's fine. But we think we can all grow in prayer, actually. And the way we grow in prayer is learning from the scriptures themselves how to pray. The scriptures actually teach us to pray. And that's what we're doing on Sunday mornings again and again, is learning how to pray from the scriptures themselves. We're doing that in our written prayers that we say together, right? Corporate prayers and the responsive psalms that we often use um, to pray. Um, and on Sunday mornings, the petitions of the church that are usually offered by one of the elders on behalf of the congregation. We're learning to pray actually when we sing hymns. Um, sometimes this is neglected. You know, We don't just sing hymns because we like the sound of music. Um, we do, but that's not the only reason. Also, hymns are glorified sung prayers to God. That's what we're doing. We're singing together. We're praying to God. We're learning to pray. Um, and the hymns that we select are hymns that we believe are trustworthy and helpful scriptural uh, channels of prayer for us to learn together. We also on Wednesday mornings um, have Wednesday morning prayer from 8 to 8.45 every week. This is another avenue by which we would love you know, for you to avail yourself of this means of grace. Um, this is something that's really important to me and to Patrick. And um, you know, it, it's just an avenue for those of us who are able to come together and just learn how to pray together um, using the scriptures, using uh, the forms that are given to us there. Um, using the Psalms. Um, you know that you know, every, basically every small group gathering, whether it's a Bible study or men of the covenant or whatever, we're going to do a responsive psalm or two responsive psalms or three responsive psalms. Like that's going to be part of who, what we do because we believe, not just because I, mean, I love the psalms, but also because I believe prayer is a means of grace by which Christ has communicated to you and you grow in him. And I believe the psalms are given to us as authorized scriptural forms of prayer. And so that's why we pray them so frequently. Um, and then pastoral counseling. Really what I do in pastoral counseling, I'm not super great at solving people's problems. Um, so that's probably not why you should talk to me if you want counseling. But what I do feel qualified to do and want to do with you is to listen and to pray with you. Because that's, that's what I'm called to do. That is a real means of grace, is when you are prayed for um, by your pastor or by a fellow brother and sister in Christ, Christ himself is offered and communicated to you in that place, in that place of suffering or whatever it might be that you're, that you're wanting to talk about and, and get counsel for. Um, so that, that's just sort of a, a picture. And why do we do this? We do this because, as Paul says in Colossians 1, 27 and 28, so that you may know the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim. We proclaim him in sacrament, in word, and in prayer, on the Lord's day and on every day, that we may present everyone mature in Christ, right? That's what we want. We want maturity, but not in some abstract form, maturity in the person of Jesus Christ and your union with him, which is why we emphasize word, sacrament, prayer the way that we do. All right, any questions in the about three, four minutes we have before we need to wrap up? Questions or comments?
Yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Everybody hear what Todd said? I think that's important to say. Todd was just commenting on oftentimes in, uh, even in Reformed Protestant um, communions like ours um, or others, there it's easy to become dissatisfied with word, sacrament, prayer, to look elsewhere. Because word, sacrament, prayer just seem like such simple um non-exciting, whatever, uh, ways in which, so the temptation is to, yeah, look outside those channels. I think that's right, and I think largely, I think you see that. That's the story of, of um, the Old Testament experience, right, um, and idolatry and all those different things. Um, I think you see that in different ways in the New Testament with um, the ways in which people tried to cling to the Jewish law um, in order, you know, ceremonial law, in order to have a spiritual experience. And I think we see that in all sorts of ways today contemporary and and you're right i think there is a there is a deep aspect of faith and trust when you say okay i'm going to trust that just reading my bible every day is going to shape me over time because sometimes it's not going to be very exciting i'm not going to feel like i have like a word from the lord that day um sometimes i'm going to go to church and it's going to be work basically and the pastor i'm not going to really be moved by a sermon or do you know what i mean like or i'm going to take the lord's supper and it's not going to be very exciting so, but yeah, the process is how do you, what we want to say is have faith, trust that actually Jesus works through these means. And as you avail yourself of them, you are being shaped, even often in ways that you don't fully know or understand, but you are being changed. That's, that's a great point And I think a good, yeah, a good clarification. Any other questions or comments about what we're talking about this morning? Yeah, Carrie. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 That's that's a good point. And sir, did you, everybody, what Carrie said that idea that you should come up to sun, come to Sunday and Lord's Lord's Day worship and feel like I need to show up. I need to be present and I need to be ready to do whatever the Lord requires of me. And actually, if you read our short, our larger catechism, rather, I encourage you to read the parts where it talks about what does it mean to receive um, the word, especially as a means of grace, and it, especially the word preached. And it talks a lot like you need to like meditate upon it, prepare for it. Um, you need to you know, study it. You need to diligently apply it to your hearts and your lives. You need to um, you know work it out and obedient. Like there's, it's not just you show up on Sunday and you hear. 30-minute sermon and you just go on your way like it, it imagines the reception of the means of grace offered in the preaching of God's word as being something that you need to really attend to um, really all week long go ahead sure sure 
Right. That's right. Yeah, and I'm yeah, I think that I'm certainly on board with that as well. Um, it is a yeah. Sometimes we we forget the solemnity of what we do on the Lord's Day. Yes, it's a joyful thing. Yes, it's a restful day. It's a day of rest. All those things, but it's also a solemn duty. We believe to observe worship on the Lord's Day. Um, it's not something that that is just when we feel like it or. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's right. Okay, thanks, y'all. I'm available for questions, of course, later, but let's stand and pray now. Father, we thank you for the way in which you work in trustworthy and um, dependable ways. What a mercy that is to us, Father, whose hearts are so often fleeting and change and vary from day to day. Um, we know, Lord, where you Offer yourself in the person of your Son by the power of your Spirit. You offer yourself in word, in the scriptures given to us as we read them, as we hear them preached, as we study them ourselves. You offer yourself in the sacrament, um, in the Lord's Supper, and in baptism as Christ himself has communicated to us. And you offer yourself to us in prayer as we learn to, Father, to speak back to you, to take your words upon our lips and to engage in that holy communion that we have in prayer through Jesus Christ as he intercedes for us. Father, we pray that even this Lord's Day, we would avail ourselves of these means of grace and that they would be truly central to the life of our church and the way that we seek to find communion with your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray through him. Amen. Amen.